Listener Production. You're listening to Darling Shine, a podcast by myself, Elodie Pullen, and me, Chloe Fisher. A place where we ground womanhood's unspoken experiences from grief to fertility and everything in between. Join us while we transform our pain into power, encompassing all emotions ugly and beautiful. Darling Shine is your chosen family and your survival kit for the unexpected shit life throws at you. Hey guys, welcome back to Darling Shine. Chloe and I are actually in Ibiza. We are about to Zoom with the amazing Prue Craven, who is actually the third person in Australia to undergo a uterus transplant. And she had this surgery just recently in March this year after being diagnosed with MRKH syndrome back in 2002. And this syndrome means that she was born without a uterus, which is super, super rare. She's got a, such an interesting story. We saw it on the ABC and we just thought we've got to get Prue on. She's had such a wild roller coaster of a ride and so many roadblocks since 2002. So I hope this chat helps people. Let's get her in here. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, girls. It's a pleasure. Now, can you please start by explaining how you say MRKH syndrome and Tell us a bit about it, Prue. Yeah, sure. So it stands for mayer ratansky causer hauser syndrome. It's a syndrome that affects about one in 4,000 women globally. Essentially, uh, there's two types, type 1 and 2. And I have type 1, so I was born without a uterus and a partially formed vagina, so I, don't have a cer- I didn't have a cervix. And the other type of MIKH includes cardiac problems, um, problems with the kidneys and spinal issues and hearing issues as well. So there's the two different types. So I was diagnosed when I was about 16, 17. I hadn't gotten a period. My sister's about a year younger than me and she started getting her period and essentially I just said to mum my period hasn't come you know this is a this is a teenage milestone why hasn't it happened so she took me to the doctors and after a series of um, tests and scans it was found that I didn't have a uterus so back then that was quite shocking to a lot of doctors Uh, it was not well known it was quite rare comparing today, more people are sort of have heard of it or aware about it. So at the time, it was a lot to deal with at 17 years old. I wasn't prepared to have, you know, that part of my life taken away from me. So no way. It's so crazy that you can get to 16 or 17 without finding out. But then I guess that does make sense because obviously, if you don't have your period, you're not really asking questions, right? No, it's not something that they would look for when you're younger. So unfortunately, it's not diagnosed until late teenagehood. Yeah. It's not like when you're born, they just do a scan and try and see what's missing or something. No, it's obviously not something that can be diagnosed antenatally. Otherwise, I assume that might have happened. Uh, When I was born, I would have had all the normal tests. And then when I was a teenager and I was diagnosed with MIKH, I had genetic testing to see if I was missing any chromosomes but I wasn't. It was just a, just something that happened. 
And it's, it's still, I think today it's fairly unexplainable as to how and why it happens. There's no genetic link with it. It's just a, a you know, anomaly. When did you find out that it was actually possible to have a uterus transplant? And at what point did you decide that that's sort of something that you wanted to do? Yeah, so like I'm, I'm 37 now. So this was 20, 20 years ago that I was diagnosed. So at the time, uterus transplants weren't an option in Australia. Yeah. I don't even think they had been performed in the world yet. What I was told was you're, you'll never have a period, you'll never be able to carry a baby, you'll be able to do IVF because you have fully functioning embryos. I'm thankful to never have needed wow. any like hormone replacement therapy. I've still got boobs and everything else is still normal, but I'll have to do IVF in order to create embryos and then do surrogacy or adopt. They're, they're essentially like the only two options I was given and I was told this when I was 17 years old and obviously at that age I knew I wanted yeah. to be mum someday but it's not something I'd started mentally preparing for. So it was quite a long way down the line before I heard about uterus transplants and I followed the um, the first transplant that happened in 2014 in wow. uh, Sweden and I continued to follow that journey until 2019 when it started, when the screening started up in Australia. So it's been a long time between then and now. And have you connected with anyone else around the world who's got, who's also missing a uterus? Yeah. So I initially went to like some support groups that were run in Melbourne when I was first diagnosed, but I'd find that I'd go to these support groups and everyone would just sit around and cry a lot because it's all quite raw and difficult to talk about. And you're still really a child. You don't know what how this is going to define the rest of your life. I started reaching out to women through social media. Back then it was probably MySpace or Facebook. And now it's through Instagram a lot. And I've made connections with quite a lot of women around the world that have MIKH and some have even had uterus transplants. Some have had babies from uterus transplants and some are currently pregnant. So I don't have anyone in my close network that I can talk to about these sorts of things other than my husband and my family. So I do rely on my social networking and speaking to women overseas for support. Yeah. We're so lucky in so many ways with social media and in that respect, hey? Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been my outlet. I didn't talk to anyone about what I'd been going through until I moved to Sydney for the first time during the pandemic. That's when I first released my separate Instagram page because I needed somewhere to talk about all of the infertility and everything that I was going through conversations that couldn't necessarily have with my friends face to face. So I used it as like a way to kind of log like my experiences and the things I wanted to say. And then as soon as I moved up to Sydney for the transplant program, I released all of that information to all of my friends and family. And I, for the first time, a lot of them said, you know, we never even knew you were going through all of this for all those years. So, but it was a huge relief. It was a huge weight off. Yeah. Wow. So you said you were told that you can, your ovaries are completely functioning you can produce your own um, eggs um, and embryos. And so 
what point did you start doing these IVF treatments and thinking about doing surrogacy or adoption? Like how old were you or when, when did that sort of start happening? Yeah. So I met, I met my now husband when I was about 19 and we, he knew quite early on that I was never going to be able to have children and he was always really supportive. We both came from really supportive families too, which helped. So we, we, we waited until we got married, which so I was about 25, 26 at that point. We agreed that we'd start IVF with the intention of doing surrogacy about that time because it's a, it's a long-winded journey. You just don't know how long it's going to go for and how successful it's going to be. But we thought that the odds would be in our favour given how young that we were. So between 2013 and 2014, I did six IVF cycles. Some of them weren't successful and some of them were. And without telling all of our friends and most of our family, we actually shipped all of those embryos over to Thailand to do commercial surrogacy over there because we didn't have a surrogate as an option in Australia and commercial surrogacy was the only way to go. So we tried working with three different surrogates over in Thailand. We had about six transfers because they only do a maximum of two transfers per surrogate. And if it fails, they move on to another one. So I think with the one surrogate, we got pregnant twice, but miscarried before 11 weeks both times. So that was really, really hard because you're trying to deal with this really personal process on the other side of the world and you've got no control and you're relying on like a Australian correspondent to feed you information. So that was, it was just a time of my life. I have absolutely no idea what else happened in anyone else's lives that I was friends or family with. I don't know what happened during those two years. And then with our last transfer, we were convinced to transfer three embryos, which they don't do in Australia, but they do endorse overseas. And I was, we were 27 years old. We had no, no clue. So we just went with the advice. We transferred our three embryos. And then the next day, the military took over commercial surrogacy and shut it down. And they were arresting couples trying to take their surrogate babies home at the airport. They were putting them in jail. What? Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Stop. And at this stage, we didn't even know if our transfer worked or not. And then this story came out about baby Gammy, the Down syndrome baby that was supposedly abandoned by the Australian intended intended parents. So while all of this was happening, we were wondering if our very last oh, transfer wow. had worked. And then I think about a week later, we found out that it failed and we had no embryos left. So we were left very, very devastated it was very traumatic, that whole process. Yeah, I can imagine. And we had no one to talk about it with. We felt like really alone. I'm so sorry, Prue. That like literally breaks my heart and I've got such massive goosebumps on my arms. Like I just, I yeah. actually do remember seeing that on the news and that mm-hmm. for you, that must have been not only going through surrogacy, having had miscarriages and then having to experience that, that is just... Fuck. Yeah, I'm so sorry that you've had to endure that. And on top of everything else that you're going through, I think that's just like, I mean, props to you for pushing on through. Like that is just crazy. Yeah. Do they give you much information about why it was failing? Was it like, do they, when you're selecting the surrogates, do you get to select the surrogates? Do you, do they, have they, pre, had they previously had children or do they get like tested and all that sort of stuff? Or were they saying that it was the embryos? 
Yeah, so the selection criteria for the surrogates over there was quite strict. Obviously, they couldn't be drinkers or smokers and they had to be fit. They had to be single women. Uh, They had to have had a live birth. So the clinic selection criteria was fairly thorough. We didn't get to select, but we did get to see photographs of each of our surrogates. We, We didn't have much control over the process Really, all we did was send sort of, you know, online cash, like money. We had an Australian correspondent that sort of dealt directly with the clinic to look after us. But once the military shut down commercial surrogacy, the clinic shut down and the doctor disappeared and we never heard anything ever again after that. So you essentially had no answers. I can't believe that happened when you were mid, like in the middle of it. I still can't believe it happened either and... Yeah, again, we had, other than our parents, we had no one that we could talk to about it because back then a lot of people saw commercial surrogacy as highly unethical, but we were desperate. We had no other options. So we sort of had to pursue it. And then after that, we were just so traumatised. We we moved over to the UK and lived there for a couple of years because we just had to be totally different Mm -hmm. people, live a different life. Yeah. I feel you. Did you put everything on hold when you went away and you just kind of had some time out or what did you do when you're in Europe? We sort of just lived like normal expats. Like we both got different jobs. Like I took a break from nursing because I was a bit burnt out from that. Yeah. And just enjoyed like traveling to Europe, you know, once a month. That was the perks of living in London. We did go to some adoption meetings in London to try and see if we could wrangle something over there but unfortunately they they were expecting us to permanently relocate to London in order to be a successful applicant and that just wasn't an option we didn't have any family or friends to support us over there with that process so that didn't that didn't work out unfortunately but we just enjoyed being young and living a different sort of life. Mm. It definitely gets to that point as well when you've like exhausted all options and you just become defeated, you feel like the medical system is completely against you. Oh, yeah. On surface level, and I'm sure you probably understand this as well, like on surface level, most of the time you can be pretty good. Literally below that tiny layer, your your insides and your your mental health and everything is just churning because especially, you know, when you don't have too many answers and you must have been pulling your hair out. Yeah, absolutely. After all of this, at what point did you decide, like, you know, I think that we need to try this uterus transplant? When we came back to Australia, it was about 2017, and we actually started looking into doing surrogacy in Ukraine about a year later because, again, we still didn't have any option of a surrogate in Australia. Like, most of our friends are still having Mm. children even today. So, again, we were just going to tell our family and friends that uh, we were planning a six-month trip to Europe and we were going to go over there and have, you know, we are going to have a transfer, go over, do some travel and then hopefully come back with a baby. My six IVF cycle, I did have a few embryos left over. So we were just going to send them over and just hope for the best. So we investigated that for quite a long time. During that year, I saw some uh, uterus transplant things pop up Um, here and there. Like I made an inquiry about it in Queensland. I think there was a doctor that was involved that was operating in Queensland. So I put in the expression of interest and didn't hear anything. All the while I was still sort of 
planning this Europe slash surrogacy trip in Ukraine in the background. And then at the end of 2019, I was on night shift at the hospital and I saw an ad, the Channel 9 website for RPA doing the uterus transplant screening. So on my way home from night shift, I literally just called the number that was on the website and, you know, explained my situation. And I said I was interested. And I think two weeks later, I flew up to Sydney with my mum and my husband for our first screening appointment. So that's, that's literally where it started. And in some ways, I'm relieved that we went down that road as opposed to going over to Ukraine because six months after that, you know, Ukraine was in the middle of this awful yeah. war and you were seeing surrogates and babies in bunkers and things like that. So I think I'm grateful that I went down that road instead. Yeah, a hundred percent. You did not need to go through that again. again. No, no, definitely not. So how soon after that was it that you were booked in with RPA? I started the screening at the end of 2019 with RPA and my mum unfortunately wasn't going to be a viable donor because it had to be a blood a blood type match. So my mum's friend actually volunteered to be a donor. So I, the next time we went up to Sydney, we went up with my mum's friend and we had a few screening appointments, about one a month. And then we got to about February and then the COVID pandemic started. Wow. My husband and I, we flew up in March for to complete our screening appointments because at that point the pandemic wasn't seen as so threatening. So we flew up to Sydney and I think the day that we got there, that was the day that the Ruby Princess like docked in Sydney and all of the COVID people got off the boat and basically as soon as we arrived all of our remaining screening appointments were cancelled and the trial was inevitably like it was indefinitely put on hold of course it bloody was yeah I know we were just like for god's sake like can anything else go wrong what's next uh yeah so I sort of said to my husband no this pandemic is it's not going to last it'll just be like the flu everything will be fine convinced him that we should move up to Sydney so we did about three months later straight after Melbourne came out of its first lockdown we moved up to Sydney in the hope that everything would resume and the pandemic was settled down. But unfortunately, things didn't change. And thankfully, while we were living in Sydney in early 2021, the hospital allowed me to do another IVF cycle. As part of the criteria for the uterus transplant trial, you had to have genetically tested embryos. And the embryos that I had left over at Melbourne IVF I made when I was 27. So no one told me I had to do genetic testing at that age. So I had to go through a three-month IVF cycle to to produce more embryos. And I was really lucky. I think they only got seven eggs, but I got five embryos out of it. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. That's a good result. Yeah. I was really relieved because like I was 35 when I did that cycle and having MIKH means that you already have low ovarian reserve. So I was worried that I wouldn't get anything from that. But like out of my seven whole follicles that I had um, and eggs collected, luckily I got five. So obviously I did something right. So good. That's really, really good. I feel like that that's a small win. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually that's a massive win. Yeah, I needed that. I, I feel like for women that have done IVF, you, you can – get so many eggs and then only get like one or two to the end. So I feel like that's 
that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. No, I worked really hard for those. It was a long three months off drinking wine. So it paid <laughs> off. <laughs> With this program, because obviously MRKH is, is, is very uncommon. How many women and how, like, how are women eligible to actually be within this program and be eligible to have the transplant? Yeah, so RPA and the Royal Hospital for Women are slightly different. RPA was only running a program for women with MRKH and you had to you weren't allowed to have a live child. So it was really just for women that couldn't have children at all and had no uterus. And the Royal Hospital for Women's program was slightly different. Um, they were offering it to women with MIKH and women who had had to have a total hysterectomy for, for reasons like um, from postpartum bleeds, from childbirth, cancer of the reproductive organs. Uh, so their criteria was slightly different. So it was open to, to more women. It was a bit more inclusive. Wow. Your mum is so beautiful for wanting to give you this gift. And then, of course, I, I know because of her blood type that she wasn't eligible or she wasn't compatible. But her friend, it's Madonna, right? That would have been such a obviously enormous surgery for both of you. Can you tell us what happens? Like, obviously, in her point in her life, would she have had to kind of decide, yeah, I'm at this age where I'm ready to basically like, voluntary go go into menopause because she knows her uterus is about to be a gift to you? That's part of the inclusion criteria. The donor not only has to be below a certain age, which I think is 60, but they either have to be pre or perimenopausal because the research suggests that once a woman completes menopause, the success of the uterus post-transplant declines and also starts to thin, which makes the prospect of embryo transfer for the recipient down the line, you know, not as successful. So in Maddie's case, she had to have had one live birth and there had to be no complications. She had to be, you know, fit and well. She had to be obviously peri or premenopausal. I think she was perimenopausal. And during our screening with RPA, she was commenced on hormone replacement therapy at some stage during that. So they were obviously, again, trying to prolong the amount of time that she was producing all of those hormones that you need to be keeping the uterus in, in mm-hmm. best shape, I guess you could call it. So that was really lucky because... Otherwise, she might not have been able to do the surgery with us or for me. So, yeah. So you've decided to have the surgery and you've been booked in. And do you want to talk us through like that whole, because obviously you've been waiting for so long. When did you kind of get confirmation that you were booked in for the surgery? And then what was the process like after that? From the moment that I had the phone call with Dr. Deans in early Feb, At this stage, my husband and I had already planned to relocate to Sydney. We'd already started the move before we even found out that RPA were not going to go ahead with us. Uh, When we got up to Sydney, we went through a series of appointments. Thankfully, I'd done a lot of the legwork with the screening through RPA. So 
I didn't have to go to as many appointments, but it was still quite intense. And, and the entire time I sort of said to my husband, I'll just believe it when it happens because, you know, we've had such a bad run. Yeah. I'm not going to believe it unless until I sort of see someone with a scalpel like standing over me. Literally. Yeah. So, and like, I'm not usually a skeptical person, but I, yeah, I guess I've just been so burnt from all of my infertility experience. I just, it wasn't going to happen until it actually happened. So I went through all of the the remainder of the appointments and, you know, got my wax and got my hair done and had a facial a couple of days beforehand. And, and then the day, the day before the surgery was booked, it was planned that my donor and I would be admitted to the hospital to have some, the remainder of the tests that we needed to have done um, because my donor surgery was planned to start at like 6.30 in the morning on that Friday. So we had to be there overnight. And I think the night before was the first time that it really dawned on me that this was all feeling real. The next day when Maddie went into theatre and all of my family were there, while I was waiting for for my surgery, as time went on, I think I got really, really nervous and really, really emotional. Like everything, all the emotion I'd built up over the last three years just started coming out my eyeballs. Yeah, it was just a really intense process, but I had a lot of support both from the hospital and from my family. So I was lucky to have that at the time. Yeah, well, so you were the third, the third woman in Australia to have this surgery. Yeah, so the Royal Four Women's did their first uterus transplant in January and then RPA did their first in late Feb and then I had mine on the 10th of March. So I was the second woman with MRKH and the third in Australia. It didn't, to be honest, after such a long journey, I didn't care if I was the first or the last. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just desperate to have the opportunity. So I'm really grateful that I did. Yeah. And it happened. Wow. And what, so after the surgery, like, can you tell us what were the, did you feel anything immediate or did you feel super different or obviously like you're groggy after surgery, but how did life after that? (laughs) Yes. I was pretty knocked um, from all of the the painkillers. The first thing I remember saying when I woke up in recovery was, do I have a uterus? Because I knew there was always a chance that I would go in to have the surgery and that I might wake up and they would tell me that it didn't work out because it's not a decision until they can make at the time when they're doing the surgery. And at this point, you're braced for bad news all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're sort of like half, you know, off your chops. And I just said, you know, do I have a uterus? Is it there? And they said, yes, you've got a uterus. And I just felt this wave of emotion. And then, you know, I put my hands on my belly and I could feel that it was swollen. I was like, right, belly swollen. There's a uterus there, clearly. And then it was just a process of um, dealing with the the following days post having like a big surgery. Mm -hmm. Like I had a a full laparotomy, like a um, belly button to pubic bone sort of cut and, you know, I was commenced on anti-rejection therapy through the drip and taking medication. So I was, at that point, I was swallowing about 37 tablets a day. Oh, wow. So there's a lot, there was a huge amount to, to process. Like my life had completely changed in the space of like 14 hours. So, 
yeah, it was a it was a surreal, surreal process. I bet you never thought that moment would come. No. Did you receive Maddie's cervix as well, or was it just the uterus? Yeah, so they they try to leave fallopian tubes with the donor if they can, but most times that they can't. So they had to take Maddie's um, fallopian tubes and ovaries, but I don't get them because I already have my own. So I got her uterus, her cervix and the top of her vagina. I have a partially formed vagina, but obviously it sort of like comes to an end. So the surgery connected the top of her vagina to mine. Now I have to have like monthly cervical biopsies to see if there's any rejection that now I get to experience periods. So, oh, <laughs> we literally cried watching the ABC documentary where you cheers with your champagne when you first got your period. And that was just such a, an amazing moment. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I got my first period like on day 32 after my surgery, which is just like mind blowing, but like after, you know, a month after having such a huge operation that my body knows what to do, mm-hmm. especially being like a bit older, I was thinking, oh goodness, everything's going to be so slow. Like nothing's going to work out, but it just knew exactly what to do. I can't explain how like surreal that process was. I, I was just sort of, you know, walking around with my legs wide open. I was like, <laughs> every time I stood up, I'm feeling like I'm wetting myself oh. and I'm calling my friends and my mom. Oh. And I'm saying, what's going on right now? There's something coming out of me. Like oh just little God. things. Like I didn't even know how to put a pad in underwear. These things weren't explained to me beforehand. I think it was just assumed that I knew, but I didn't. It was like being sort of a 16, 17-year-old girl again and my friends were just found it so hilarious. But I would have loved it. Yeah, they, they said the novelty is going to wear off quite quickly. <laughs> For me, I think the novelty did wear off pretty quick, but I tried to embrace the experience as much as possible. And and now I've, I've just, I'm having my fourth period, like right now, like it's just amazing that Clockwork. four months post-surgery, everything's just happening as it should. Wow. So has it been like textbook, like on time, like your cycle now? Yeah, my cycle's been like 27, 28 days every month, which is like, no I mean, I'm not an expert on what's normal. I'm not even an expert on like dealing with periods. Everything is working out in that aspect as it should, which I'm, I'm really relieved. Like my periods, I haven't had the, the best experience, but like they've only sort of lasted like three to four days, which I've heard is pretty good. Um, and I haven't had any like major mood swings or anything like that, but I've enjoyed sort of like the, the chocolate cravings. I have sort of leaned <laughs> into that a little bit more. Yeah, I've just tried to embrace the experience really. And it's so nice to to know what that feels like. It's just bizarre. Like after 36 years being a woman and then never having a period, like I'm finally able to experience this feeling that I've always longed for. So, Isn't it so incredible how the human body works? I know. Well, it means that the uterus is like getting ready to have a baby at some point. So if that's what it has to do, that's what it has to do. I'm good with that. Let it happen. I yeah. We are so excited to hopefully hear some of that baby news for you soon. Yeah, hopefully it's not too far away. Got a few issues that we're dealing with at the moment, but it's definitely on the horizon and I'll be pushing for that for sure. Oh my God, I'm so excited for you. It's like there's light at the end of the tunnel, you know, after there's light. You've, you've, yeah. It's like such an incredible story. And did you say that you've known a woman that 
has had ba- has had a baby post the uterus transplant? Yeah, there's quite a f- there's a few women in the in the US that have the same condition as me that had uterus transplants, and a couple of them have had a child from it. And I speak quite regularly with another woman in the US who has MIKH and had a uterus transplant about two years ago. And she is just about to go into her third trimester of her pregnancy. So it gives me some hope that for someone like me, maybe because it's my body, it would work this time. Again, I think it'd be one of those things until it happens, I won't believe that it's possible. I feel like this is the most extreme process I could ever have chosen to go through as a woman for motherhood. So it's got to be a sign that something's going to work. And if it doesn't, then I'm okay with that. I'm just, there's, there's lots to look forward to in life aside from just having children. Oh, wow. You're so amazing and so strong and you have the best outlook. I just cannot believe what you've been through. It's actually insane. Years of practice. <laughs> You'd be so tough. We, can, we are so grateful for you sharing this story. I know this is going to help so, so, so many people from people who are trying to have a baby to people going through surrogacy and people, I hope people are listening to us who have this same syndrome or are born without a uterus as well. It would just be so amazing for them to hear this. How is your husband going with like this whole process? Because I know that they sometimes, you know, they're there to support as best they possibly can, but I feel like some of the partners often not suffer in silence, but they they don't really show a lot too much emotion because I feel like you know they they just feel like they're there to support us. Yeah, he's quite a reserved and private person. So for me to go and be like speaking at conferences, and I have spoken to like a newspaper, being on the ABC. And then having my social media um, site where I'm so honest about everything that goes on, that's quite, he, he, he's not so much about putting himself out there. So he, he prefers to just sort of support me behind the scenes. But I think for someone in his position, I think he feels quite powerless. Mm -hmm. Like he can't, he's sort of watching me go through this process of having this huge operation and then trying to recover from that and then all of the side effects that I've been through and continue to go through as a result of the the medications. I think he always just longs for a way to be more involved or just something that he can do to kind of ease the burden of my daily routine, Um, whether it's just, you know, doing my, my week's worth of pills or just reminding me to take them, reminding me about appointments little things like that or cooking dinner, but he's sort of like, he just sort of keeps normal life going. You know, he's the calm, cool, collected one. He just keeps, keeps the house running, keeps the bills paid, keeps the train running while I just sort of deal with myself. (laughs) Yeah. I think he deserves a massive shout out. He sounds amazing. You two together have been through way too much. And your beautiful mum and Maddie too. What a unit you got. Yeah. I know, we're very lucky. But I'm really intrigued and I know a lot of people are probably really intrigued. Can you conceive naturally without IVF after you've had a uterus transplant or does it? do women actually have to go through IVF if you've had the transplant? Yeah, unfortunately, because when they connect the donor uterus, the fallopian tubes and ovaries that I have aren't connected. It's just not physically possible right. um, without damaging the fallopian tubes and they just couldn't guarantee that 
natural conception would happen. So my ovaries aren't connected to my dota uterus. So unfortunately, natural conception isn't possible. So I would have to go through embryo transfer under anaesthetic in order to get pregnant. So do you still feel like after doing the seven rounds of IVF, you're still seeing like the aftermath effects of it on your body and like your hormones. I still feel like my periods are like a little bit weird and like I'm having these like weird skin outbreaks and emotional outbreaks and I just feel like the repercussions of it, I'm still not good. Yeah, yeah. After all the IVF, I found that because I was so young when I first did it, I now I feel like every time I go through ovulation, my ovaries swell up like grapefruits and they're palpable through my skin. Like I can feel them through my skin. And especially now that there's a a uterus there now that wasn't there before, I think all my my body is just adjusting to having something else there. So um, I get quite bad pelvic pain now, um, which I didn't have before. Oh my goodness. I literally have just been having that with it this week. I, I feel like post my surgery that I that I just recently had in San Francisco, whenever I ovulate, I'm getting like the most excruciating, which is mind-boggling to me because you go and you have these surgeries to fix endometriosis and to fix all this sort of stuff in hope to not actually have pain, pain around anymore. the times of your cycle. But I actually never even had pain pre any of this. And now I was like crippled over in pain like a few days ago with like my ovary, my right ovary. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so unbearable. It was, it felt like someone was actually stabbing me and it was around time of ovulation and I was just tripping going, why is this happening now, you know? And my periods are only a few days long, super light. And it's just like, it's so mind boggling what we've actually put in our body through obviously in hope we're going to be holding our baby in our arms one day and it's all going to be forgotten. Yeah. I think the only reason that I have done everything that I've done so far is because I started so young. So Mm -hmm. I was quite naive. And when you're young, you're sort of enthusiastic and you're motivated and you've kind of got nothing to lose. And now sort of 10, 11 years down the line, I'm exhausted and mm-hmm. I'm dealing with things that I was never dealing with prior to ever doing IVF. Now I have chronic pain as a result of mm-hmm. IVF and now having the surgery. And like you said, Chloe, it's like someone poking knitting needles up your, up your vagina. Like mm-hmm. it's really awful. Yeah. And this is something that I'll probably have to live with for the rest of my life now. Not that I'll have the mm-hmm. uterus forever, but yeah, it's just something that I'm just going to have to live with. So despite the fact that this process might actually work out and might have a baby from it, all Mm -hmm. of the experience that's come to getting to that point, like the grief and the trauma and the pain that you now suffer, that will never go away. It's something I'll always have to live with. Do you see someone for the grief and the trauma? Yeah, I do. I've always spoken to someone at whichever point in the process that we were at. So we had infertility counselling when we were going through IVF. We had IVF counselling. And since I've had the surgery, I get to speak to a social worker at the Royal for Women's for free as often as I need to. I've actually got two social workers that I can talk to, which has been like invaluable. Like I've really needed that support to help Mm -hmm. get me through. You just need like that third person to sort of validate how you're feeling because sometimes when you have these conversations with friends, I feel like they don't either don't know what to say or they just say what they think you want to hear, which can sometimes be offensive or, you know, you might find insulting. So I find just having that third person 
that can help give you some perspective on how to deal with things, how to cope with life yeah. and trying to help, help you focus on life outside infertility as well has been really, really yeah. important. And that's the only reason I've managed to get to this point. Yeah. Thanks for answering that because I swear to God, like at this point for me, it's been like four years and I think only in the last two weeks I've been seriously considering going, I actually think I need to go and I need to see someone because I'm sweet one second and then like I start just relaying all the information in my head and I'm going, I don't know how I'm going to get through. Like, But I've always like considered it and I never like, you know, that's why I wanted to ask you that question. Like do you actively see someone and is it actually helpful, you know? Best thing I ever did. There's, there's no okay. way like a normal person could cope with all of yeah. all of this stuff. Like there's, it's, it's almost impossible. And like I said, like you just feel like you're surviving and it's the periods where life starts to slow down. It's easy when you're busy and you've got lots mm-hmm. to keep you going and distracted, mm-hmm. but it's those moments where you start to slow down a little bit and have a break and you just, it all just becomes consuming and overwhelming and then you just crash. So it's good to have that regular support to help you cope with those with those times where you do feel like you're alone in this and you've got no one and you're dealing with all of this shit, basically. Far out. It's a lot. Thank you so much, Prue, for today. That's okay. Thanks so much for having me. Your whole journey and everything, I'm like so in awe of you. Like you're incredible and like I take my hat off to you and like for punching and marching on and you know you're definitely an inspiration to so many women out there and I'm yeah we feel feel really grateful that you've come on the podcast to share your story with us well thank you so much for having me I I feel like sometimes it can be quite a doom and gloom sort of story when I look back at it but then I think about how far I've come and the fact that I'm mentally still intact um, and I couldn't have done with that that with all the support that I've had along the way and just for myself as well I think I've just been done a really good job of looking after my my own well-being at the same time. So thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And hopefully we do have um, a round two podcast episode with you later on um, with some exciting news. I'd love to share. I'll be, I'll be lining <laughs> up to share the good news when it actually happens. Oh, we have everything crossed for you. Thank you so much, Prue. Please go and connect with Prue on Instagram. You can find her at makingroomforawomb.com. 